Revelation chapter 12. I'm going to only cover verses 1 through 6 tonight. And actually, we won't even finish 1 through 6 because of the stuff we're going to be diving into. Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. And it says, A great sign appeared in heaven, and a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was cut up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, if anybody's listening online right now, and you've caught up from where we were last time we met together, you'd say, how in the world did you get to chapter 12 so fast? What have I missed? Well, we're studying the book of Revelation chronologically, and we've already seen the first six seals opened, and I believe at this point we're at the midpoint of the tribulation, and chapter 12 will give us a real cl a clearer idea of what's going on at the midpoint of the tribulation. And so that's what we're going to do tonight, is we're going to take a look at chapter 12, but before we can go even into more detail here, I'm just saying, notice that we see that there's 1,260 days when, when the dragon goes after the woman. And she's protected in the wilderness for 1,260 days. And if you do the math, by the way, keeping in mind that a Jewish year was 360 days, not 365 like ours, that's three and a half years. So this is at the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation period. And so in order to really understand what's going to be happening here in chapter 12 and following, we have to take a break and go back to the book of Daniel. So put a bookmark in, the, in, in here in Revelation 12 and go with me to Daniel chapter 9. As many prophecy people have rightly said, Daniel's prophecy in chapter 9 is like a linchpin. It's such a key to what, to help us understand the rest of prophecy. Because something was prophesied to Daniel in chapter 9 that when you break it down will help all the other prophecies begin to make a lot more sense. But in order, before we get to verses 20 through 27, we're going to start in verses 1 and 2. Revelation, uh, sorry, Daniel chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. It says, in the first year of Darius, the son of Azuharis, by, by descent a Mede, who was making, made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Now we're going to stop here and understand what's going on. <clears throat> Daniel had been taken captive to Babylon as a teenager under Nebuchadnezzar. The Babylonians were conquered by the Medo-Persians, and as you see here in this passage, in the first year of Darius, the son of Azuharis, by descent, a Mede was made over king. So now they've got a new king from the Medo-Persian Empire, and Daniel's still there in Babylon, but he's under a new set of, of owners, if you will, and rulers. At this point, Daniel's been in Babylon for quite a while, and he's almost 90 years old. But I don't want you to miss something here that God showed me in this week in, in preparation for tonight's study. Daniel's a prophet, right? Daniel gets his words from the Lord, and God speaks directly to him in visions in different ways. Yet Daniel was studying the scriptures. Do you see it? 
The reason he's about to head into where we're going to go is because Daniel was reading the, script, the scriptures. He was reading Jeremiah. And as he was, as you see, studying it, he came to realize some prophecy that was made by Jeremiah that he took literally was about to be fulfilled. And he started praying about the fulfillment of that prophecy that was coming to an end in his day. And so let's take a little time to find out what that was. Go with me to Jeremiah chapter 25. Now, I'm going to hit this very fast. There's a lot more to this, but we don't have time to cover it all. But the nation of Israel, way, way back, we're not going to go that far back and show you it, but the nation of Israel was told that every six years, after the end of six years, they were to give the land a rest, a Sabbath year, and they weren't to plant or harvest in that year. That they were to trust that God would take care of them, and they were to give the land a rest every Sabbath year. Now again, there's lots of reasons why God taught about the Sabbath, and one of the main ones is it was to be an example to the rest of the nations that they were a people of God, and how God was going to take care of them. And how crazy that might have looked to the rest of the world as this whole nation didn't plant or harvest for a whole year. If you ever know anything about farming, you know you live off of the next crop and the next crop. But God told them to do something crazy. He said, I want you to give the land a rest. And every seven years, you just don't plant and harvest. Watch how I take care of you in those other years and how you have enough to go through that. Did the nation of Israel obey God's command? No, they didn't trust God. Some of us have been told by God to tithe, but we're afraid. We don't know how we're going to pay our bills. And we miss out on so much blessing that God has for us when we walk obedience to when he says, trust me, test me in this, he says this. And so in this situation, God then, after many years of them being disobedient and not giving the land to rest, God says in, Dan, in sorry, Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 9 through 12, God says, Behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon. How long? Seventy years. Then, after seventy years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon in that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. All right, now look at, once you see what's going on, God said, because you didn't give the land the rest, I've kept track of how many Sabbaths are supposed to have happened. You owe the land seventy years of rest. I'm going to take you out of that land, and I'm going to use Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to come and take you and take you captive, and they're going to take you out of the land, and that land's going to get the 70 years rest that I had planned for it. Oh, don't worry. I got a plan for Babylon as well, and later I'm going to judge them as well because of what they've done. Now, if you even read the whole book of Habakkuk, you'll understand that the book of Habakkuk is the prophet crying out and saying, God, I don't know if you're paying attention, but the righteous people here in Israel are suffering, the wicked are prospering, and I'm not sure you're watching. God says, actually, I am, and I'm going to do something about it. I'm actually going to take the, the, this nation down to take you captive. And the Habakkuk cries out and says, well, how can you justify that? How can you use a more wicked nation than us and take us captive? I just told you the righteous were suffering and the wicked are perishing. Now you're going to use a more wicked nation to take us captive. The, the more wicked are going to prosper and the righteous are going to suffer more. And then God says to him, oh, don't worry. I've got something planned for that nation down the road as well. And Habakkuk in chapter 3 pretty much says, you're God and I'm not. And I'll wait patiently. Folks, let me just tell you, all through history, we see in the scriptures that God 
does as he wills among the nations, does he not? And he actually will use nations that don't know him to bring judgment on peoples that do for his purposes. He keeps track. And when the nations do wicked, he'll judge them as well. Let me just tell you, heads up with what's going to go on in the world in the days to come. Because as we know, we're getting closer and closer to the time of the end. And the Bible says the time of the end is not only a judgment on the nation of Israel, it's a judgment on all the nations. And the chaos that is erupting in this, around this globe, and we see what happened in Paris and all, it's been going on for a while, but it's about to pick up speed. So with that in mind, I just say this to you. God told through the prophet Jeremiah, I'm going to take you captive into Babylon 70 years. That's how long it's going to be. And guess what? Daniel, who was alive at the time of the captivity and the prophecy being fulfilled, is now in Babylon. Now it's under the Medo-Persian rule. And he's studying the scriptures, reading this, realizing and taking it literal. He's doing the math. The 70 years are almost over. So he begins to pray about what God's going to do. Let me show you one other passage, though. Jeremiah 29. We love to quote verse 11. Most of us don't know verse 10. In Jeremiah 29, look at verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. He just goes on and on. But look at what he says. He says, when the 70 years are completed, I'll bring you back to this land. Daniel took the word of God literally. And he starts praying. Go back to Daniel chapter 9. In verses 3 through 19, you see Daniel's prayer. And he's praying about his sins and the sins of his people in the city of Jerusalem. And in verse 20, it says, While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks, some of your translations say sevens are decreed about your people and your holy city. Keep in mind, Daniel has been reading the prophecy that said that the captivity in Babylon was going to last 70 years, and when the 70 years were over, the nation of Israel was going to come out of captivity and go back into the land. He believed it, so he starts praying and saying, God, it's got to be close, it's got to be happening soon. He starts praying about it, and Gabriel comes to him and says, by the way, this is the same Gabriel that visits Mary. Gabriel comes to him and says, Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city. Now, this word seven, before we go any further, translated sevens or weeks, is like our word dozen. If I say to you, I have a dozen, how much do I have? I have 12. But what do I have 12 of? You don't know, do you? <laughs> Y'all can put in whatever you want. Hundreds of dollars. No, it's just the word dozen means 12 of something. 
This word translated sevens or weeks is like one of those words. It means seven of something. And as you're going to see from this prophecy, it means seven years. In other words, you've got seven years. Seventy-seven year periods are decreed for Israel and the city of Jerusalem. Don't miss this. Because like I say, if you can let the Spirit of God help you see this, it's exciting as all get out. He's praying about the 70 years of captivity, and Gabriel says, let me tell you something about your people. You're praying about your people in your holy city, and you're thinking about going back. Let me tell you what God's plan is for the whole nation and for the city. 77-year periods are decreed for your city and your holy people. By the way, anybody good at math? How many years is that? 490 years. Keep that in mind. Keep reading. 77s are decreed about your people in your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. By the way, let me back up. In my translation, where it says anointed one, some of your translations might have a different word. What is it? Messiah. Let me tell you, I love that. Because actually, that's what the word means. So listen again to that prophecy again. Verse 25. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of Messiah, a prince, there shall be seven sevens. Then for 62 sevens, it should be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 sevens, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood. And to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one seven. And for half of the seven, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So we're going to break this down tonight and hopefully have the Spirit of God help us to really grasp what's going on. Daniel is told that 77 year periods or 490 years have been decreed for the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel. And at the end of this 490 years, there's going to be an end to transgression, an end of sin, atoning for iniquity, bringing in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit. In other words, you don't need people like me anymore. And to anoint a most holy place. Have that, has that all been fulfilled? It's very obvious to us that there has not been brought in everlasting righteousness. There definitely hasn't been a sealing of the vision and the prophet. And the anointing the most holy place has not happened. Yes, he has atoned for iniquity. He's put an end to sin in one sense that it's been paid for, but it's still going on. And finish the transgression. That hadn't happened yet as well, has it? But he says, 490 years are decreed for Israel and Jerusalem to accomplish all these things. So with this understood... It's obvious to us that the 490-year prophecy has not been totally fulfilled yet. But if you'll stick with me, I'm going to show you all of it has already been fulfilled except one seven-year period. And not only has it been fulfilled, it's been fulfilled literally to the day that Messiah came. Just like the prophecy said he would. So let's do the math. It says from the decree to build Jerusalem till completion will be what? 
Seven, seven year periods. How many years is that? Four, 40, 49 years. Now, keep that in mind. Seven, seven sevens is 49 years. Now, there have been a lot of decrees in the Bible to go back and rebuild parts of Jerusalem. A couple of them are about the temple. The temple actually was started to be rebuilt before the walls even were started to be rebuilt. But the prophecy says from the decree to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, there'll be 49 years. Go with me to Nehemiah chapter 2. By the way, Nehemiah was one of the shortest people in the Bible. Nehemiah, just think about it for a minute while you're turning there. You know who else was a short person? Bildad the Shuhite. And the guard who slept on his watch. Those are the three shortest people in the Bible. But let's get back to the study. Nehemiah chapter 2. Look at verses 1 through 8. It says, In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I had given him a time. And, when, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy." And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon him. So this is when the decree to go rebuild the walls of Jerusalem goes out. Here we see it in Nehemiah chapter 2. Now, as I'm about to give you dates, please keep in mind, there has been great discrepancy because of calendar keeping. We're not even sure the exact year Jesus was born, but there is, first of all, no such thing as year zero. But we, you know we have our, our calendars A.D. and B, B.C. and A.D. Most likely, Jesus was born in what our calendars would have B.C. Because of that, there's a discrepancy as to when the calendar flips and all that kind of stuff. But when you do the study and you do the research, this is around 444 or 445 B.C. Many people put it at March 5th, 444 B.C. When you keep in mind that Jewish calendars had day, uh, months that were only 30 days, and their years were only 360 days, not 365, and you start doing the math, that's why when you get 1,260 days, it adds up to three and a half years. When you start doing that, from the moment that Nehemiah, the decree from, Nehemiah, during, from the book of Nehemiah here, from the king to, for, for Nehemiah to go rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, from the time that that went out until the walls were finished, does anybody want to have a, a wild guess as to how long it took? It took 49 years. 
It took 49 years. You study the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll see the rebuilding of the temple, the rebuilding of the walls, how it was such a hard thing during that time because you had Samballat and Tobiah who were working against the nation of Israel and trying to work out, from, you know, stop it from within. There were times that they were building the wall with one hand and using a sword in the other hand. It, it, I'm not kidding. You read the Bible stories, you'll see it was a crazy time. But it took 49 years, the prophecy said, from the decree till it's finished will be seven sevens. But then the prophecy back in Daniel said that there was then going to be 62 sevens. All right, this is a little harder math now. 62 times seven is how many years? 434 years. So listen again to the prophecy. And after the 62 sevens, verse 26 of Daniel 9, and after the 62 sevens, Messiah shall be cut off and have nothing. Folks, this is all on the online. You can double check me. There have been books that have been written. This is one of the most provable facts in history. From the moment that the prophecy went out to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem until it was finished was 49 years. From that point on, it was 434 years later that a man named Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey on the day the prophecy said that Messiah would come. You do some research and you'll find that many Jewish rabbis won't even deal with this prophecy. There was a debate years ago between this Jewish rabbi and this Christian who was a Jew but became a believer, and they were debating in front of this, this college audience. And the rabbi who was arguing, once they got to this passage, stopped the debate and said, we better stop or everybody in here is going to become a Christian. Because it is so clear that the scripture said, this is how many years it will be till Messiah comes. Go with me to Zechariah chapter 9. Book of Zechariah chapter 9. And look at verse 9. Book of Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. By the way, that was the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And what was he riding on? The exact same thing in the prophecy said, your king is going to come to you riding on a donkey. Go with me to uh, the book of Luke, chapter 19. Because even though the prophecy clearly said, this is when Messiah will come. From the decree to go out, there's going to be a 49-year period. And from that, there's going to be a 434-year period till the day Messiah comes. By the way, that was March 30th. Let me have it down in my notes here. 33 A.D. They knew exactly what year and day Messiah was going to come. He rode into Jerusalem on that same day. Again, there's so much here, I don't have time to get into it. But folks, I could even take you back to the book of Exodus, where the Bible says that on, when they had the Passover meal, that God set it up with Moses and the nation of Israel before they left Egypt, that they were to, take the, they were to start their calendar all over again. And they were going to make that day the first day of the new religious year. And on the 10th day of the month, they were to welcome a lamb into their house and treat it like a pet. And then on the 14th day in the evening, they were to kill it at twilight. Guess what? The day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem, you know it was at the time of Passover. It was on the 10th day of the month, the day they were to welcome the lamb into the house. 
he wrote in on that day. All these prophecies pointing to the fact that he was the Messiah. And what most people don't realize is that when Jesus finished riding on that donkey into Jerusalem, he wept. Listen to what Luke 19 says in verses 41 through 44. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus said, if you'd only known what this day was all about, if you'd only believed the prophecies, if you'd only understood the scriptures, but now it's hidden from you. And this is very important for us because here he describes the destruction of the nation of Israel in A.D. 70 when they were scattered. And remember how he had been asked by his disciples in the beginning of Matthew 24, right after he said, see this temple, not one stone will be left on top of another, just like it says here. And they said, when's this going to be? And he talks about the destruction of Jerusalem and Luke's account. And as you know, because of the rejection of the Messiah, the nation of Israel was scattered to all the nations. Before they had been taken in captivity into Babylon because of the 70-year prophecy, but then they were allowed out. But then later on, there was prophecy that God was going to scatter them to all the nations. You say, Jim, where's that? Well, go back with me real quick to Jeremiah 29. I stopped reading at a certain part on purpose because the prophecy goes from the prophecy about the 70-year captivity to the prophecy about his return and gathering them at the very, very end. Jeremiah 29 Starting in verse 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from where? All the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. By the way, that means he wasn't talking just about the captivity in Babylon, was he? He's talking about a future scattering. And there's lots of prophecies that talk about at the end. He's going to bring them all back into the land. We're seeing that happen in our day. But has the nation of Israel turned to the Lord yet? Have they called out to him and look on him whom they pierced? No. But the Bible says it's going to happen. The fact that we live since 1948 is an amazing blessing for us because we now get to see that, hey, maybe this really is going to happen as literally as the prophecy said. But remember that Jeremiah, sorry, that Daniel was studying Jeremiah. He took it literally when it said 70 years. And when he did so, he began to pray and say, God, I want to be part of that going back to the land. I want to, you, I'm going to pray for my people, pray for my city. And God said, let me tell you, 490 years are decreed for your people in your city to put an end to sin, to finish transgression, to atone for iniquity, to anoint a most holy place, to bring in everlasting righteousness. I've got a plan for you. I've got plans for you, Israel. And it's not to bring you harm. And one day, you're going to turn to me. One day, after I've scattered you to all the nations, I'm going to bring you back. And you're going to believe in me. And we're going to have a great relationship. But the prophecy in Daniel 9 said, go back to Daniel chapter 9, said that after the anointed one or the Messiah was cut off, and we know he was crucified. If you've been reading your book that I encourage you to get, that Tony wrote, 
you'll see that that word actually could be translated slaughtered or killed. After the Messiah was killed, it says, And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end shall come like a flood. We just talked about that. Remember Jesus said when he wrote into Jerusalem, Because you've missed the day of my coming, now you're going to have the nation uh, armies surround you, and they're just going to dash you to the ground, not leave a stone upon another, and you're going to be scattered to all the nations. And to the end, there shall be war, desolations are decreed. But by the way, let's stop real quick. How many years was prophesied by God to, for the nation of Israel in the city of Jerusalem? From the, rebuilding, the decree to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem? 400 and what? 90. We've already seen 49 and 434 literally fulfilled to the day. Put those together. Does anybody know how much that adds up to? 483. So 490 minus 483 leaves what? One seven-year period left. And look at verse 27. And he, this is that prince to come, shall make a strong covenant with many for one week or one seven-year period. And for half of the week, he's going to put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So all we know is, is this. 490 years have been decreed for Israel and the city of Jerusalem. 483 of them have already been literally fulfilled to the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And just like the prophecy said, the Messiah would be cut off, would be killed. Jesus himself told them, when you do this, I'm going to just scatter you to all the nations. But I know the plans that I have for you. And it's to give you future and a hope. And after I've scattered you to all the nations, I'm going to bring you back into the land. And if you do a study of Ezekiel 37, you'll see the prophecy of the dry bones. And Jesus tells Ezekiel, these bones are the house of Israel. And miraculously, these piles of dry bones just start coming back to life, don't they? But they didn't have the breath of God in them. Yeah, the nation of Israel is being regathered. Yes, the nation of Israel miraculously became a nation in a day. And the prophecy said that. Can a nation be born in a day? And it was. But the rest of the prophecy, Ezekiel, where he's supposed to prophesy the breath into him, that hasn't happened yet. And that's not going to happen until the end of this last seven-year period. Why? Because God had already told Daniel, 490 years have been decreed for Israel and the city of Jerusalem to put an end to all this stuff, to bring in an everlasting righteousness and to anoint a most holy place. All this is going to be fulfilled at the end of this 490 years. 483 of them have been literally fulfilled to the day. They are now in that period between the end of that part of the prophecy. And then the Bible says there's going to be this one who is to come who's going to make a covenant with the many for this one last seven-year period. And at the midpoint of that, what's he going to do? He's going to, as you're going to see later on tonight, step into the wing of the temple. And Jesus said in Matthew 24, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, run for your lives, get out of Jerusalem, get out of Judea. And as we saw in Revelation chapter 12, let's go back there now and tell me this doesn't make a little bit more sense now. And I saw a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the, uh, of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. 
And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days, which is three and a half years. Or as you're going to see later on, also described as 42 months. So what's happening is this prophecy of Daniel will begin when the tribulation period, that one last seven year period begins. The rapture does not start the tribulation period. Many of us who have studied prophecy for years have seen all the charts and they have rapture and then tribulation immediately beginning. It doesn't have to be that way. The rapture could occur today. Tribulation period doesn't begin. Couldn't happen maybe for another 30, 40, 50 years or more. What starts the tribulation period, that one last seven-year period for the nation of Israel that will be literally fulfilled to the day, will be this covenant confirmed between this one world ruler and the many. Israel's going to be involved in this because it's going to benefit them greatly. But the Bible says at the midpoint of this, three and a half years into it, he's going to break the covenant. He's going to step into the wing of the temple Put an end to the sacrifice, which, by the way, shows us that at some time the nation of Israel is going to get their temple rebuilt because he has to have a temple there for him to step into it. We can speculate as to whether or not that's going to be a part of the covenant. Maybe it could be that they've been allowed to rebuild it before then. We don't know. But I'll tell you one thing. If we do start to see a temple going up in Jerusalem, I'd be a little giddy. I don't know about you because another piece of the puzzle has been put in place. Don't try to figure out how it's all going to happen. Just understand that where we are in Revelation chapter 12 is what's happening right on the midpoint of the tribulation. So what we're going to do tonight in the time we have left is begin to break down these six verses in Revelation chapter 12. We won't have time to get into it. And I already told my wife and kids tonight as we were heading here, I cannot wait to teach you tonight's study. Yet at the same time, we're going to end up right at a point that I wish I could go further. But we'll have to save it for the next time we get together in a couple weeks because there's just so much here in these verses. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. The translation of punctuation of the ESV, I don't agree with the punctuation of the ESV. They have the 62 weeks tied into the completion of the, t- of the, the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, the King James translation, I think, does a really good job in that breaking down of what is when and where. But it's... Then if you read it in the ESV, it reads like the 62 weeks are part of the rebuilding of the walls, but it's not. It's they put a period in the wrong place. And I just thought it would be really hard to try to break that all down without how trying to lay it all out. But what I said to you is right. It's 49 years from the rebuilding of the walls, the decree to the finishing of it. Then there's 62 years from that point on. It, the ESV's punctuation and, and it does make it a little confusing. But again, if you do the fuller study, it's very, very clear there. So, and again, I'm glad you brought that out. In Revelation chapter 12, we see the sign appears in heaven, and there was a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Does anybody know who this is? Very good. It's Israel. And I'm going to show you from Scripture that it's Israel. Again, some. Many people for years have tried to say that this is Mary. And maybe some of you have even seen pictures of Mary with the you know, sun on her head and the moon under her feet and the 12 stars. But it's not Mary. 
and I can show you that it's not Mary, and I can show you that it's Israel. Again, <clears throat> whenever the scripture is doing some symbolism, and we've not seen the symbolism before, the Bible will tell you what it symbolizes, right? But if it gives us symbolism, and it doesn't tell you what it symbolizes, you either take it literally, or the Bible's already told us what this is, and we should understand what it is. We see this already. Go back with me to Genesis 37. In Genesis 37, verses 9 through 11, we see the situation where Joseph has been given these visions and these dreams by God that his family is going to bow down to him. Who is Joseph's father? What's his name? Jacob. What's Jacob's name? It was changed to what? To Israel. In Genesis 37, verses 9 through 11, it says, Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves down to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So he has this dream that the sun and the moon and 11 stars, him being the 12th, they all bow down to him. His father knew exactly what it was saying. And he said, am I and your mother and your brothers all going to bow down to you? So the sun and the moon and the 12 stars are who? It's Israel. You want further proof that it's Israel. Israel is the one who gives birth to Jesus. This is the child, the male child. And the male child goes where once she gives birth? Because the dragon goes after the male child to kill it. Where does the child go? Read it again. Where? I want you to see it. He was caught up to God and his throne. Not just God's throne. His throne. And the Bible also says that she'll give birth to a male child, the one who's to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And go to Revelation chapter 19. You're in chapter 12. Go to Revelation 19. Look at verses 11 through 16. John says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He'll tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So who is this male child that this woman gave birth to who's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron? <coughs> Excuse me. It's Jesus. It's the Messiah. Go with me to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 12. Why do the nations rage? And the people's plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. 
Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with what? A rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For the wrath, His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. These are just two of the places. There's many more. We know that when it says that He gave birth to this male child and He is going to rule the nations with a rod of iron and He was caught up to God and to His throne, this male child is Jesus. The woman who gave birth to him is not Mary, though. It's the nation of Israel. We saw that from Genesis 37, but we also see it because the woman in verse 6 fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for how long? Three and a half years, the second half of the tribulation period. After the Antichrist steps into the wing of the temple, the abomination of desolation, this one who's going to make a covenant. Remember we saw early on in the first seal, this rider on a white horse who... Conquered without any warfare. He's going to use flattery and guile. He's going to come into power. We're going to learn some more about him tonight in just a bit. He's going to make a covenant with many for one seven-year period. And actually, the Bible even says he'll confirm a covenant with the many. In other words, it may be a covenant that's already been made, and he just is the one that finally gets to enact it. I'm not saying this is the case, but interestingly enough, years ago, if you remember, they had all the peace talks there in the Middle East, and they had the peace treaty all drawn up. And it was a seven-year peace treaty. But it was never enacted. It was never ratified. It might be that peace treaty. Don't know. A lot of people are trying to bring it back. Yes, Mark? And this is why he said measure, measure not the outside court, because it's a shared situation on that Temple Mount. Yes, but again, we'll get to that when we get to that part. But yes, there, that's a part of it. There's, there's a lot that we'll get to if Jesus doesn't get us before then. But yes. All right. Either way, we win. All right. That's good. So the woman is Israel. The woman gives birth to Jesus. Jesus goes up to his throne. The woman is now chased by the dragon out into the wilderness where she's been protected for 1,260 days. Look at verses 13 through 17 in Revelation 12 as well. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. Here we see it again. By the way, I don't know if you caught this or not. God is trying to get our attention about how long this is going to be. It's 1,260 days, three and a half years. You're going to see later on 42 months. Here it's a time, times, and half a time. Three and a half years again. All right. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from its mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. All right, we'll get into that more as we get into that part of Revelation later on. But what we need to do now is let's go look at this dragon. Hopefully the dragon is obvious to you. Who's the dragon? It's Satan. And you want proof? You're in Revelation chapter 12. Look at verse 7. 
Now a war rose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. By the way, this war has not happened yet. I want you to understand something. For years, I've heard a lot of Christians say, well, Satan's not allowed in the presence of God because God can't have anything unholy in his presence. Well, no, Satan's in his presence right now. Satan can come and go between earth and heaven. As you know, in the book of Job, when the angels appeared before God and Satan came with them, the Bible describes him as the accuser of the brethren. He's accusing them day and night. Right now, he's got the freedom to come and go. He's still on a leash and he can't do whatever he wants, but only what God allows but it's not until this point, the midpoint of the tribulation, that Satan is finally cast out of the presence of God forever and down to the earth. And that's when, as you're going to see later on, he actually indwells the Antichrist. Satan himself not only comes down to the earth, he indwells the Antichrist and starts controlling him from within. But we know that the dragon, that ancient serpent, the one who tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, is Satan. That's who the dragon is. But the dragon has seven heads and ten horns. Again, if you knew your Bibles, you'd know. Wait a minute, we've seen this before. Go with me back to Daniel, to chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. Daniel says, And after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth, and it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had how many horns? Ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which of the three first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Jump with me down to chapter 7, verse 19. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured in broken pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, And that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and he shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and he shall think to change the times and the law. And they shall be given to it into his ham, hand for how long? <coughs> a time, times, and half a time. So again, the prophecies told us way back in Daniel that this individual is going to come into power. There's going to be a ten kings that make up this fourth kingdom that's going to be. Now, here Daniel's told about four beasts, and the fourth beast being this one, because he's being told about what's to come from his point on. We're going to see in just a second in Revelation, John's shown a picture 
of all the kingdoms of the earth that have been in power over the whole earth. And there's actually been more, more than four. But he's told about all the ones that are going to come. And there's a fourth beast. And it's unbelievably terrifying. And he says this, king, this, beast, this kingdom, if you will, this beast is going to be made up of ten kings. But there's going to be another king that comes up among. And he's going to remove three of them. And he's going to pretty much run that last kingdom. Now, this tells us about the ten horns. But what about the seven heads? Go to Revelation 17. Revelation 17, verses 1 through 14. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of those whose sexual immorality the dwellers on the earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had, here we see it again, seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and of the earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with the seven heads and the ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five whom have fallen, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it's an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. They are of one mind and they hand over their power and their authority to the beast. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called chosen and faithful. All right, now we're going to deal later on when we get to chapter 17 about this woman that's riding, this prostitute who's riding the beast. But we see that the beast has seven heads and ten, and ten horns. We've already seen the ten horns of these ten kings. But the seven heads, he says, are seven hills on which the, uh, the, the, the woman sits, or sorry, or mountain which the woman is seated. Let me just real quickly, we'll get into this in more detail when we get to chapter 17. People say that proves it's Rome, because Rome's known as the city on seven hills. But actually, I can list for you six or seven cities that are set on seven hills. And actually, if you do real research, you'll find that Rome's set on nine hills, not seven. And over the years, we've been saying a lot of things. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I kind of lean toward the fact that this, fourth, this last kingdom is going to be a revived Roman Empire. That area of the world is going to come into power. But to just say that means it's Rome and that's proof that it's Rome is lazy Bible study. But the Bible also tells us that it's referring to these seven kings. Five have already fallen. And by the way, at the time that John was given this prophecy, those five kingdoms that had ruled the whole world were Egypt, number one, Assyria, number two, Babylon, number three, Medo-Persia, number four, Greece, number five. One is, which was what? Rome at that time. And the other is not yet come. The seventh king, kingdom, is we're still waiting for it to come. It's coming together. It hasn't come into one world power yet. 
It's going to last. Those are going to be made up of ten kings. They're going to last for a short time. But as we know, the person we know as the Antichrist is going to come into power amongst them, remove three of those kings, and they're going to give their authority over to him. And he's going to have a dominion over the whole earth for how long? Three and a half years. All right. Again, when you start putting it all together, you start seeing how all of a sudden this is starting to make some sense. Now, we're going to get on into more of that later. And when we come back together next time, two weeks from now, we're going to look more at this dragon and the battle that's been going on between God and Satan all along. And so what I want to do in the time that we have left tonight, this little bit of time that we have left, is I just want to talk to you a little bit about the fact that this battle that will ultimately end up between God and Satan, it's been going on all throughout history. And to be honest with you, and I want you to stick with me here, because I'm going to say something that some of you may not like, but I can prove it to you scripturally. We're pawns. We're being used as chess pieces, if you will, between Almighty God and one of his created beings, Satan. And God has chosen for his purposes to allow this to happen. Satan was given a role, was he not? A tremendous role. And he was not satisfied with his role. And God says, I'll tell you what, Satan. I'm going to create a world. I'm going to create people lower than the angels. And I'm going to let you infect them with your attitude. And then I'm going to go down and I'm going to die for them. I'm going to let them choose. Whether or not they're going to serve you or serve me. Oh, by the way, um, we're loved by God. How does Satan feel about us? He hates us. Any idea why we were so hated by Satan? Because we were made in God's image. He so hates God, he can't stand us at all. Remember back when Satan appeared before God and God points out Job? Because remember, God says to Satan, Where you, what you been up to? Satan goes, I've been going back to and fro throughout the earth. Well, we know from the book of 2 Peter that the reason he goes to and fro throughout the earth is to look for someone to devour. And God points out Job, and, God, and Satan says, well, the only reason Job worships you is because you won't let me touch him. Let me just touch him. Let me do something. You've got this hedge of protection around him. And God says, I'll tell you what, I'll remove the hedge of protection. You can't touch him, but do whatever you want. When Satan was given the freedom to do whatever he wanted, what did he do? Killed them all. Except for his wife, because he was already on his team. Listen closely, though. God has been playing this chess game, if you will. And I think that even though the Bible says that we're to do our good deeds in Matthew 5 before the men, so they may glorify God, I think the Bible shows, and you're going to see this as we come back in two weeks, we're on a much bigger stage than that, folks. Actually, we're not really living our good deeds just before man. I believe the Bible teaches that the angels, both the good ones and the bad ones, the angels and the demons, are watching what's going on in the lives of these humans that God created for his glory in his image, made lower than them. And the Bible says one day when all is said and done, we are going to rule over them. Those who are willing to let him do whatever he wants in our lives. Give us cancer and we still worship him. Take away our job, 
our provisions at times, our health, whatever it is that we go through. If we can get to that point where we, aren't we all a little bit not satisfied with our lot in life? Is our, doesn't our flesh want us to be unsatisfied with our lot in life? Yet the Bible says that Jesus, the second Adam, came and he fulfilled the role the Father had for him, even though that role meant death on a cross. He did not seek more, but he submitted himself to the role the Father had for him. And the Bible says if you and I will have that same attitude of Jesus Christ and say, if this is what he has for me, even though he slay me, yet will I trust him. I prayed three times for this thorn in my flesh to be removed, and God says, no, I'm going to leave it there for my purposes so that my power may just be displayed in your weakness. Paul says, then I'll embrace it. Bring it on. I'll embrace the thorn because I want him to be shown powerful and strong. He must increase. I must decrease. And the Bible says in the book of Peter that angels even long to look into this relationship that we've been given. Let me remind you, go back with me real quickly to Ephesians chapter 6. That as we watch what's going on in the world, it is so easy for us at this moment, especially with the global news that we have, to freak out and to see, oh no, what's going on? And we can lose sight of the fact that everything is right on schedule. And I want to remind you of Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I don't know if you caught that yet or not, folks. You are in a battle right now. And who is it against? Satan and his demons. Oh, you can't win on your own. That's why you need to daily renew your mind. Daily submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee. Not because of you, but because of the one who's in you is greater than he who's in the world. But we need to keep in mind that as we watch what's going on and we see what's happening across the globe, this is a battle that's been going on for a long, long time. And the Bible says it's going to culminate with a final battle of them actually fighting against God themselves. Oh, right now they may be going after us because we're Christians. They may be going after us. It may be if Jesus tarries that they go after us as Christians and take away our church buildings and take away our ability to say the Bible is this or the Bible says this is sin. You know what? The battle's not against man. The battle is not against City Hall. The battle is going on in the spiritual realm. And if you don't know how to rest in the Lord, you're going to become shrapnel. You're going to become people that are kind of left by the wayside in the battle. And I pray that you don't. Because in Ephesians chapter 3, look at verses 7 through 13. God said something about the church that most Christians have missed. Ephesians chapter 3, look at verses 7 through 13. Of this gospel, Paul says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, Paul said, though I am very, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things 
so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to, look closely, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul, writing from prison, said, I don't know if you realize this or not, but I was given a role by God, and my role was to proclaim to you Gentiles this wonderful salvation, what is, been going, is going to be given to Israel, but now has been given to us to make them jealous. But it's not only that. God's intent is that now, through the church, a people that have said, you have given me this gift by your grace, by your, your mercy, you've given me salvation, you have made me yours, I will let you choose what goes on in my life? 2 Corinthians 5.15 says we no longer live for ourselves, but for the one who died for us. I'm going to put away my plans and my desire. I'm going to stop dreaming big things for God and sounding like, more like Satan instead of Jesus. And I'm going to be willing to accept the role you have for me. And Lord, even if that means imprisonment or the loss of my possessions for you or the fact that I will be out ostracized because I believe in you or the world thinks me crazy, I don't care because this battle is not about me achieving and climbing the ladder in this world. This is something that's been going on long before I got here and will continue after I'm gone. You're doing something for your own glory and you for the ages have been trying to prove yourself to the angels that you were created, that you created before us. Because the Bible says that he said to Job, where were you when I laid the foundations and the angels already all celebrated? The angels existed before the creation of the world. Folks, let me tell you, he's got a plan and it's all going to play out. The question is, are you going to roll with Satan? and fuss and complain and whine because things aren't going like you think they ought to? Or are you going to be like Jesus and say, even though it means death, my father's got a plan and he's good. And one day it's all going to be made right. He, for the joy which set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. And he then was exalted. And one day, if you don't lose heart and don't grow weary, you too will one day be exalted to rule over the angels. And God says, you are my co-heir and I'm going to give you glory just like I give it to my son. But the issue is, are we willing at this moment to stop watching the news and looking at it with man's eyes? Let me tell you, I have a preference as to who I'd love to see become in power in the United States in the next election, if we even make it that far. But don't you think for a second that if we get the right people in office, we can get things the way we want them to be. This is a spiritual battle that's going on, and we need to grow closer and closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we get back together, yes, praise the Lord. Grow back to the Lord. When we get back together in two weeks, we're going to take a look at this Satan guy. We're going to take a look at it in greater detail because I can't wait to show you that the Bible actually shows us that there was an animal on the earth named Leviathan, which was a fire breathed literal. Your commentators in your Bible say it was a crocodile. Laugh. It wasn't a crocodile. There was a fire breathing dragon on the earth. And I'll show you that the Bible shows that God created an angel that represented Satan and no one could touch it. And God killed it to prove that he has authority over him. And so, folks, tonight... Go home and take a deep breath. Everything's right on schedule. Everything's right on schedule. He's given us how it all plays out. Rest.
Share the good news that God's going to win. Share the good news that God will give salvation to anyone that would receive it. And if they reject you and reject it, relax. It has nothing to do with you. I'm just a pawn.